Hi, everyone. Today's conversation is, I think, a very interesting dive into the use of hypnosis to help entrepreneurs and other high performers accomplish their goals. You'll hear me talk about this in the interview, but you know, I, as a psychologist, don't have a ton of experience with hypnosis. Folks use it, but I've just not had a lot of training or exposure. So I talked with Elliot Rowe, who is somebody who has done a deep dive study in hypnosis and is really mindful about how to use it to support people in their performance, as well as in their just overall mental health and well-being. In our conversation, we unpack some of the you know, how does hypnosis work? It's not just a magic trick. It's not at all a magic trick that there are some physiological and scientific underpinnings to what makes hypnosis uh, successful for some folks. And again, I think it is not necessarily a resource that folks commonly tap into, but could be something that's helpful. And there's certainly some strong research support for the use of hypnosis and things like smoking cessation. So maybe just putting it on the radar for you to consider, you can do the research and inform yourself about the options. But I, I do think it's made me curious. This conversation made me really curious. If you'd like to do a deeper dive beyond the podcast, I'm doing some live events in the near future. I'll be in Washington, D.C. for an event on Thursday, September 29th. If this is something that you're interested in attending, definitely reach out to me and I can forward you all the details. I'll also be in Breckenridge for uh, Breckenridge's TEDx in the middle of October. So would love to connect IRL, as the kids say. Grateful for many of you who have listened to the podcast for a long time. Grateful for those of you who have supported my work with this new book, Touching Two Worlds. Grateful for those who have left reviews on Amazon. As we all know, those are sort of super, super important to the life of a book. And I am happy to offer this conversation with Elliot Rowe. Hopefully it is interesting to you, leads to some new insights and awarenesses. Be well. Welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means, sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. Well, Elliot, it's really lovely to be able to have time for a conversation with you. And I think the place that I wanted to start is by talking about hypnotherapy, hypnosis. You know, as a clinical psychologist, we get like a, a little, it's like a chapter that we read. Or people can do a specialization in that, but it's not often done anymore. So to meet like a real live hypnotherapist is kind of extra special. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, so my background is hypnotherapy. Uh, I came into it because I had a fear of flying. So about 15 years ago now or so, I'd had a fear of flying all my life. It stopped me doing long haul flights and for short haul, it would ruin my vacations. So I'd worry about it from when I booked the flight to when I got on the flight, I'd go on vacation. I'd worry about getting on the flight back. I mean, it, it was sort of would take over the whole process of a holiday for me. And someone recommended a hypnotherapist and I was very skeptical. And I went to see her 
And there's no magic in hypnotherapy. It's not like stage hypnosis. You're not collapsing. There's no swinging watch. It's very like guided meditation. And she took me through this meditative state. And then as I got very relaxed, she asked me to bring up memories around flying and the feeling of the fear. And initially, it brought up some memories of being in turbulence on a plane. And then it got to a very early memory of me being a small child at my grandfather's house and um, being shown a picture of a small plane and being told it had crashed and killed his business partner. We then reframed that memory, so looked at it from a rational viewpoint rather than the child's viewpoint. And I felt completely different about flying after that session and was comfortable to fly. So it, it changed my life. And what was most interesting to me was it wasn't a memory I was aware of. And I spoke to my parents and said, hey, was this real? This thing has come up in a hypnotherapy session. And they said, yeah, that you know that happened, as parents do. And it was very interesting to me that in an hour, someone was able to find the root cause of my fear, reframe, and then resolve that fear for me. And because of that, I went and got trained as a hypnotherapist. And really, the work that I do is for high performance in, in sort of in business, in sports, in trading, things like that. And I'm looking for that same kind of information. So someone comes to me, hey, I have self-sabotage in my business. I have a fear of failure. I have a fear of success. I have anxiety firing my staff, Wh whatever it might be. And what we're looking to do is look at wherever in their life there's a difference between what they would tell someone else to do as the logical thing to do in this situation and where they find themselves doing something very different. And if they're doing something different to logic, there's an emotion that's playing some kind of protection mechanism. And we're looking to go in, understand where that emotion is coming from and what the narrative of the program is. And oftentimes it's, I'm not good enough, self-worth, as I say, fear of failure, fear of success, things learned in childhood. And then we go back to those memories, reframe them from an adult perspective and remove the emotion that's causing the fear. So that's a very quick <laughs> explanation as to what hypnotherapy is and the sort of process that I'm using. Is there almost always an index memory? You know, in your story, there was this one kind of specific moment of being shown this picture that led to or was the roots of the other. Is that typically the... There's, there's typically an initial sensitizing event. So so that would have been mine. And then usually for a, a phobia or fear to be created or a change in behavior, there's then secondary events that prove that that's correct. Another example would be, you know, someone saying, I'm scared of spiders. Why do you think you're scared of spiders? I'm scared of spiders. Because when I was at school, someone threw a spider in my hair, right? That That's actually more likely to be a secondary event because the reason it was scary that someone threw the spider in your hair is because when you were younger, your mom screamed when she saw a spider and you knew that spiders were something that potentially you should be scared of. And it's the same with things like rejection. We learn to fear things in the initial sensitizing event, which can be, you know, they don't have to be extraordinarily traumatic things. They, they can be hints. They can be feeling that, you know, my parents might prefer my brother more than me. Or, you know, it's these subtle hints from childhood. And then the brain starts looking, the mind starts looking for commonality. It wants to prove itself correct. And if someone feels judged they will find an awful lot of evidence that they're being judged in many, many parts of their life in the same way as if someone thinks that they're loved, they're going to find a lot of evidence that they're loved in lots of parts of their life. But there is usually the, this core memory, this initial sensitizing event, and then a series 
of events and memories that then consolidate that program. I think what's so interesting about hypnotherapy particularly is the integration of the body in that deep relaxed state. So as I hear you talk, you know, the, the psychologist in me is sort of like mapping this theory onto other theories. Like in a way you're talking about cognitive theory, right? You have an experience, then you collect data that enforces that experience. It becomes a way of seeing the world. It gets embedded and you act from it, which is a very like cognitive framework of understanding behavior. But what's so interesting about hypnotherapy is that sense of being able to get underneath some of, in again, my language, defense mechanisms or some of these patterns, but the importance of that relaxed state. You're not just talking about then this happened, then that happened, then you felt this, then you did this. There's something else that's happening that's a very like physiological experience. So effectively what we're looking to do is, as you say, get someone into that trance state and then elicit the subconscious to become dominant over the conscious mind. And you're doing that through visualization and having them describe things that aren't there. It's it's bypassing the conscious critical faculty. So you get to this very relaxed state and then I'll be saying, I'd like to picture a door in your mind and describe it to me. You'll say it's a black door, a red door. And then we'll say, okay, I'd like you to step through that door and it leads onto this beautiful beach. Describe the beach for me. Where are you? And the person will start to say, the client will start to say, I'm on a beautiful beach. It's got white sand. The sun's on my skin. We both know that that beach doesn't exist, right? But they're describing someone, something as if it's real. And once they're in that state, they're in this, this sort of almost a, a state of imagination and they're in their subconscious, they're not in their conscious mind. And then from there, those defenses that you're describing are lowered. And we're then tracing the true emotion. So we then elicit the emotion, the physical response to the emotion. So you described that when you're speaking to your investors in your company, you're feeling physically sick in your stomach. What does that feel like? The last time you spoke to your investors, describe that feeling for me. And they'll say, I feel sick in my stomach. I feel a pressure in my chest. I can't breathe. Excellent. When else in your life have you felt that way? And because the subconscious knows why it's creating the physical response, it will give you the list of memories as to why it's decided to create that response for you. It's just sort of the, the basics of the program. I guess I have two questions simultaneously. I'll think of them in order. I'll do my best. <laughs> Both at once. Yeah. So some people are not hypnotizable, right? Is there, or at least that's the theory. So I'll tell you the idea. You tell me what you think, but that idea that there's a level of imaginative capacity or some might say suggestibility that makes someone more have a better outcome with hypnosis. I haven't seen that very frequently through my career. So when you look at the research on hypnotherapy and hypnosis, a lot of it is about suggestibility, as you said. So that would be how good you would be as a participant in a stage show. And for me personally, I've had stage hypnotists try and hypnotize. Like, I would not be good in a stage show. Like, it just doesn't doesn't work like that with me. <laughs> I'm not very suggestible whatsoever. However, I'm a very good participant in a hypnotherapy session. And there's a difference between suggestibility, which is being told to think something and accepting it, versus the sort of work that I do, which is regression-based hypnotherapy, which is bringing up memories and then the client solving their own issues. So there's sort of a, a shift between the two. 
so I've probably worked with, I mean, this these numbers sound too round, but they're they're pretty accurate. Probably around 2,000 clients, and I can think of two clients where it just wasn't the right fit for them. And that was when there was truly no capacity to visualize. So even in normal life, if I said, can you think of a pink elephant? Most people can think of a pink elephant. Or can you picture your garden? Or can you picture a beach? And I've had a couple of people who their minds don't work in that way and that there is literally no capacity for visualization. If there is some capacity for visualization, that's enough because it's, as I say, it's not suggestion, the work that I'm doing, it's it's regression based. And it is, it's just not not the same issue as, as a lot of the research that's been done historically on hypnotherapy from what I've seen in the results of my clients. And I'm about 14,000 sessions in, so it's it's not... Like, you, you didn't just start yesterday. You're not making this. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of data over 12 years. And, and that's what I've seen with it. There are hypnotherapists who do just do suggestion work. And, and in that case, yeah, how suggestible the client in it is, is very important for the hypnotherapists who, who work in suggestion. Why do you think that hypnotherapy has a, a little bit of a bum rap or a little bit of like a snake oil suspicion? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's because of the, st- the stage shows and the media. Almost everyone's introduction to hypnosis is a stage show where people who are extraordinarily suggestible make a good show on stage and they do things that they wouldn't naturally do or potentially wouldn't naturally do. They might really want to do it and that's why they're on the stage. But that's the issue. It makes a hypnotist look all powerful. And for most people, it wouldn't work. And as you watch it, you think that would never work on me. And for the vast majority of the crowd, you're right, it wouldn't work on you. And then you get the false claims made by those people, which also, again, looks great for the show, but it's it's not very good when you're also looking at this as a therapeutic modality. So I think that damages the credibility. Obviously, Freud wasn't a fan. That damages the credibility. He, he wasn't very good at it and he, he <laughs> wasn't a fan. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, and that changed the direction. It, it was very big prior to Freud and, and he struggled with hypnotherapy. It's actually, I believe, a rapport-based modality. If you struggle with rapport, you're not going to be a very good hypnotherapist. I I don't think it's something everyone can learn and everyone can be good at. I see it more of an art than a science. And I think possibly that's another issue with this, is that the world that we're in right now, approaches that literally anyone can learn are going to show better research than approaches that are more of an art than a science. So I, I think I think that damages it as well. Because of the way that science happens and the replicability and numbers that are required in clinical research. Yeah. So if you have someone who who really struggles with rapport and you're utilizing them to do your research, you're going to get some terrible results. And I think I think that's part of the issue as well. So so I, I think it's a combination of those things. But the biggest thing is certainly the media representation everyone's first interaction with it it certainly isn't from a therapeutic point of view it's from a show and it looks scammy and it is a bit scammy and you know i'd love it if they had different names but they don't have different names (laughs) there is quite a body of research though in support of hypnotherapy strategies for a variety of clinical things like smoking cessation for example there's very strong research. I'm, I'm sure you know that research literature about her. But I'm, I'm curious about how you apply this with high performers. You referenced this a little bit. Of course, many of the folks who are listening to this podcast are entrepreneurs or are leaders in companies. What are some of the use cases for hypnotherapy as applied to entrepreneurs? For entrepreneurs, as I say, it's 
usually they're coming to me understanding that there's something holding them back, but they don't know what. So they'll come to me and they'll say, hey, my business has been hitting the same numbers for the last X number of years. And it makes no sense to me that we're still doing just under a million dollars or just under $5 million, whatever it might be. And they're capping themselves in some way. And then we'll look at why there'll be a financial cap or there are procrastination issues or there's perfectionism issues where they have a product ready to launch. I mean, you're an author, so lots of authors have this issue. They get their product to 99% and then they're unable to launch the product. It's never quite good enough for the market. And we'll be looking at where those fears are coming from. So if it's a perfectionism issue, obviously by not launching, you're keeping the product in limbo and you can't be judged. And usually there are issues through childhood of feeling judged and wanting to be the best. Or there are issues with not being able to try your hardest on projects, not giving 100% in your business. And when I work with the clients around not being able to give 100%, doing the things they know they should should do to have the highest chance of success, oftentimes we'll get these memories of childhood where they're the clever kid at school, they don't have to study for exams, and then as the exams get harder, they still don't study for the exams because trying and getting a B is horrifically scary for them. But if they don't try and get a B, then they're safe because they could always tell themselves they could have tried and they could have got the A. So it's these different self-protection mechanisms that show themselves up. And it's really just understanding where we're seeing the lack of logic and this sort of the following of the emotions rather than than logical decision-making. And then we're just exploring where that's coming from and how that might then impact them in their business. In that framework, is, is logic seen as the higher reasoning ability and emotion is the lesser, more dangerous, irrational one? Like, is there a value of logic over emotion? Yes. Yeah, so, so the way that I frame it within business, Sherry, if you were a consultant for your company, what advice would you give? And then the client will give the list of advice they would give if they were a consultant for their company. And then we'll have a list of the things that are actually happening. And if there's a difference between what they believe they would tell someone else honestly to do as the best decision, and they're not able to do it themselves, then we're seeing the emotion as flawed because you're not able to do what you logically believe is best. It doesn't mean that emotion doesn't have a place, but it doesn't have a place if it's not allowing you to do what you believe is best for the business or best for yourself. Well, it's that dissonance, right, between the belief and the action. And it's my belief that the dissonance between the two is created by an emotional program. And that's what I've seen over and over again, is if there is a difference between the two, then there's a reason for that. And your subconscious has a reason for that, that has come from somewhere. So it's always just trying to keep you safe. So throughout all of these sessions, I just the constant theme is your subconscious is trying to help you. It's trying to keep you safe. And, you know, a lot of the time that's keep keeping you in your comfort zone. And because, you know, anything new is dangerous to your subconscious. <laughs> because right now, almost every I'm sure almost everyone listening to this, you have food, you have a roof over your head. A lot of people have loving relationships. There's a lot of safety in life and there's a lot of fear in your subconscious about pushing out of that into a new into a new place, into a new area outside of your comfort zone. And um, yeah, we're just trying to reduce those fears so that people aren't holding themselves back in that way. Yeah. And I appreciate that framing. It's, it's very compassionate, actually, that 
that those emotional stories have a reason, like they're there for a purpose and, and often with, with good intent, if not great outcome, the good intent of your safety, the good intent of your well-being. And I, I find that that nuance is so helpful to bring into a coaching relationship because I feel like there are plenty of, of coaches and consultants out there who are working with high performers who will just sort of stop doing that. You know, there's this like override, this pushing, which like it kind of functions like, um, like mindset porn. Like it feels like it's the right thing. It feels good. It sort of functions a little just bit. Just get up at 4 a.m. <laughs> right. Just get up at miracle 4 a.m. Miracle morning, miracle morning. <laughs> it's like, okay, we can just hustle, like push and hustle our way on through, right? Yeah. And and you have to be aware if, you know, if you're trying to do those things, there's, there's going to be a brake on and your subconscious acts like a brake. So you're driving with the accelerator, but your subconscious is going to be burning a lot of energy if you're just trying to force your way through these programs. Yeah, as I say, I just view this as you're trying to be kept safe. And a lot of the time, it's eight-year-old you that's trying to keep you safe. And eight-year-old you wasn't the best decision maker. Eight-year-old resources, eight-year-old frameworks. Yeah, Exactly. But we're still running the eight-year-old programs. And if we can start to change those programs and make them adult programs, so going back to those same situations that created them, you know, the school bullying that was terrifying when you were seven years old, but look through adult eyes, this is a seven-year-old pushing over another seven-year-old. It doesn't need to be life and death and terrifying. We can remove the emotion from that. That program is very different and it can be a lot more effective moving forward. So for folks who are curious about potentially exploring this modality, what are some of the questions that you may suggest they ask if they're exploring working with a treatment provider who is advertised as a hypnotherapist? How do you kind of separate the really good quality from? First of all, I'd be looking for testimonials. As I said, I believe this is, I mean, this is strongly my beliefs. It doesn't mean I'm right. I believe this is an art, not a science. And what that means is someone, the qualifications are less relevant than the results the person's been getting. So there are some people who do a large, large number of courses and they don't get great results. And there are other people who don't do as many courses, but have incredible results. So I'd be looking for testimonials. I'd be looking for someone who's very busy. So typically coaches and therapists who are very busy are good. And coaches and therapists who can fit you in tomorrow aren't as good. <laughs> um, and <laughs> For those of you I mean, on my waiting list, that's I, why. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And then also ideally someone who's worked with a friend of yours. So, so you want personal recommendations. We did this exercise this week. I went through all of my clients of the last, of the last year. I haven't had a single client who wasn't a referral. And in the last two years, I've had one client who wasn't a referral. And, and that's relatively normal for people who are successful in the industry, um, in coaching. If someone is really hardcore advertising and 95% of their clients are coming from adverts and it's not referrals from former clients, that would be a bit of a red flag for me. It doesn't, doesn't mean they're bad, but it's if you get good results, your clients refer you to their friends and then you're busy. And, and that's typically you know, what I've seen with high quality coaches, not just in hypnotherapy, but just with any form of coaching or consultancy, that, that should be the main driver for business. And probably lots of other businesses as well, but certainly in our line of work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, probably every business. Yeah, restaurants, <laughs> like hotels. Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much for your time, Elliot. If folks want to know more about you or your work, where's the best spot for them to, to learn more about all that you're working on? Okay, so um, I have a website, elliotrow.com. You can apply for coaching there. We have a whole team of coaches. Uh, so there's sort of someone for everyone. And then I have an iPhone and Android application called Primed Mind where you can download hypnosis audios and you can download that for free and try it out. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. It's been great to chat with you. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.